Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hello, Hidden Gems. It's Lauren with Hidden, a true crime podcast. As a TV reporter, I learned the art of visual storytelling. So if you're like me, you enjoy listening, but also viewing. You can actually head to our YouTube channel, Hidden True Crime, to watch these interviews. Hit the subscribe button for surprise lives and breaking news. And for exclusive content, things Dr. John and I only dare say behind a paywall, become a Patreon member at patreon.com slash hidden true crime. You'll find bonus episodes, early releases, and insider info. Thank you for your endless support. This interview between director Sky Borgman and Hidden True Crime was originally recorded on September 9th, 2022. Hours after recording, Colby Ryan's charges were dismissed. Hello, we are with the Sky Borgman today, director of numerous uh, true crime documentaries, uh, an incredibly talented artist, and someone that's also been at our dinner table as well, uh, and has interviewed and spent a long time with John. In fact, the relationship is so close. I have video of you, Sky hitting John with newspaper as a fly <laughs> flew around. <laughs> yep, I remember that. Uh, Sky, I don't know, man. You do a lot of documentaries about domestic violence. It seems like you're, you're pushing the edge there a little bit. careful who I hit with the newspaper. But, yeah, in, in fairness, I wasn't hurt. It was, it was, it was... <laughs> It, it was, it was for the done. Ball. There was this giant fly buzzing around when we were doing <laughs> yeah. the and it kept it was... landing on John and buzzing the I microphone, know. and we were trying to get rid of it. I don't think we ever got it. You know, I, think, <laughs> I don't I know if we it, ever did either. I think it disappeared of its own accord. Really? If we, <laughs> yeah. Domestic I, violence and murder. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Scott, you've uh, interviewed John for hours, hours and hours, and we thought it would be. An enjoyable thing is we all look forward to the upcoming documentary that you did those interviews for, Sins of Our Mother, to have John interview you as the director of this upcoming film and as the director of many other films. And so I'm going to let you two take it away. I'm here to enjoy and observe and and maybe jump in every so often. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. I'm excited. Let me just let me just begin with uh, an introduction that, you know, I, I met Sky. I was very fortunate to meet you, Sky, through the upcoming documentary you're doing on the Daybell case. I feel like you've kind of taken the true crime community by storm this summer with your two documentaries, uh, the one in July, The Girl in the Picture, and the one released in August, I Just Killed My Dad. Both are amazing. I think in many ways that Sky is sort of redefining the genre of true crime because I think her her documentaries tend to be very victim-centric, and that's a little unusual in the world of true crime. And from someone who spends a lot of time with offenders, my my job primarily is to make sure the community's safe and to make good decisions for the community. And so Sky really kind of gives voice to that need and gives voice to the victims, that, especially in the girl in the picture, who obviously didn't didn't have a voice or an identity um, until you came along. So thank you for doing those. Um, You also, I should mention, you also did a documentary in 2017, Abducted in Plain Sight, which is just a a jaw-dropping look at a really 
fantastical case that also involves Mormonism, like Daybell, and it is an award-winning, critically acclaimed documentary, like all of her documentaries. And I have to say, Scott, uh, Lauren and I just watched it again a few months ago, and mm-hmm. we, had, we had the even though we knew the outcome, we had the same reaction. We just we just couldn't believe what was going on. I'm very grateful personally, Sky, that you're involved in true crime and that you're spending your considerable resources and talents in this arena because it's 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 an arena I think that needs some humanization sometimes. No, I appreciate it. I really do because it's it, it is very important to me to have that that victim centric sort of thrust behind all of the stories that I tell and um, and it's it's something that I I look for in stories and try to try to sort of develop out a little bit more, um, you know, the crimes and the stories that are out there. Um, there are many people sort of focusing on, on the victims a little bit more and the survivors a little bit more, but the market is saturated with, with stories about the perpetrators. And so if we can start to sort of tell, you know, the stories of the real people, the stories of the people that the stories don't get told about a lot, you know, um, that's, that's what I love to be able to do if I can. Yeah. Well, you do it well. And um, I'm glad you're doing it. So, um, you know, I noticed on that issue, you know, a lot, a common theme in many of your documentaries is domestic violence. Is that something that you're, you're seeking out? Is that something you have a passion for? You know, I think, I think my passion is, is to tell stories. I really like telling stories um, with women in them. And so many of those stories that, that have women in them, have domestic violence attached to them, unfortunately, yeah. but I think that's, that's a really, you know, uh, stark truth. Yeah. So, um, and it's something that I think is maybe we're getting better at understanding domestic violence, but I don't actually think we are. I hope we are, but I don't actually think we are. So I think, you know, being able to tell these stories maybe can help educate or can help give, give people a greater understanding of how domestic violence happens, why we as women may or may not talk about it the way that we're asked to talk about it, why we're blamed for staying with people. You know, I mean, there's so many complicated yeah. things that um, that hopefully we can start to normalize the talking about it. And, and by doing that, decreasing the numbers, because yeah. the numbers are staggering, staggering. Yeah, I know it's 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 something that we're that Lauren and I are very very invested in because because of that. I've been in domestic violence uh, treatment and um, education for over twenty years, and sadly, I haven't seen a whole lot change. I know, I know, know? yeah. And, and it's it's so when we, you know we talked about the Gabby Petito situation and. Um, I was talking about my belief that it was domestic violence before anybody else was, and it was it was staggering to for me to see the public reaction that didn't believe that Brian Laundrie was an abuser, and um, you know there were uh, in fact when when I talked about it publicly, I received a number of of really derogatory responses saying you know that that it had nothing to do with her that that he was not violent that, you know, in fact, his family put her up and he was a good, you know, all this, all this mythology. And I, I think a lot of the mythology is also that domestic violence means striking some, hitting someone and only that, you know, that there is, yeah, you know, yeah. some sort of physical violence that's present. And, and while that is absolutely true, that is, that is one element of domestic violence. There are so many others. There's, you know, financial threats, there's, there's so much involved in domestic violence that isn't just sort of striking someone. Yeah, I agree. Like the, the research these days shows that course of what's called coercive control. Right. To be one of the, you know, the foundations. And um, I think in, in your documentary, uh, I just killed my dad. You show quite clearly that coercive control is in many ways, the predominant theme um, that Bert is as controlling a human being as you could ever imagine. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, it's really striking in that one, I think, because, you know, even law enforcement's ability to understand coercive control or the justice system's ability to understand coercive control is challenging because you're faced with something and these are evidentiary based 
yeah. jobs, right? I mean, this is how they sort of do their jobs. And they go, this is, this is how we've been taught to do our jobs. This is how we do our jobs. This is the evidence. The evidence points to this. Well, what if that evidence isn't there? What if there is no hospital record? What if there is no police report? What if there's no bruise? Then what, what becomes the evidence and how do we redefine our way of thinking about evidentiary-based cases? And how, how do we do that? And I, I don't know the answer to that, but it needs to, it needs to kind of happen. And I think there was some success in I Just Killed My Dad. I think, you know, look, these, the people involved in these, they know what domestic abuse is. They've seen a lot of domestic abuse, yeah. but it's really redefining how we look at these cases and, and opening it up for, for a greater discussion. Yeah, no, that's, that's right. Exactly. That, that's, that, in fact, you kind of tease that out for the first few episodes about, okay, he looks like a murderer, but how are we going to show that he's not, right? And um, I agree. And those, the evidentiary issues are especially large in sexual abuse cases where it's essentially someone's word against someone else, right? And, um, and you know, in some ways, I feel like we've gone backwards in that arena too. But, but yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's a really critical issue. And, um, and of course, the emotional you know, in psychological abuse, you can't see necessarily. I think like the, the forensic psychologist you brought on was enormous benefit to that case because in some ways she was able to bring out some of the things that weren't seen, but was it was so critical to an understanding of that case. Yeah, I agree. And, and to really sort of have a professional sort of talk to another professional and have this be a very you know, legal sort of way of doing this, have this report sort of that she filled right. out to really talk on those kind of terms with people. And it's, look, it is interesting to me because, because all of these psychologists, you know, yourself included, like we have this way and you have this way of going in and writing these reports. But my big question is like, why isn't it changing? Like our understanding of abuse is getting better. I mean, even these words, coercive control, right? This is, this is a new word that we're using or that is becoming yeah. more regular in, in how mm. we speak about this, but only in the past couple of years. I mean, even for me, this is a new word that's, that's come up and, and one that I'm quite familiar with, but it has not been around very long. And yes. I'm sure this has been an idea that's been around for decades, but to actually know what that means and to institute this change, I mean, how, how can that happen? Like from your perspective, I kind of think, look, I kind of think making documentaries and talking about it, normalizing this and having it be something out there, I feel like it helps. I don't want to like, look, my goal absolutely is to change the world in whatever way I can. It's, it's a little bit crazy for me to think that I can do that. But I do think the stories of these people and them telling their stories helps others kind of say, I'm not alone and maybe even recognize, okay, he doesn't hit me, but he does do all these other things to me. And that's coercive control. And that's domestic violence. I agree. Thanks for saying that, by the way. I really appreciate that type of vision and the type of commitment to your work about wanting to change the world. I feel like a lot of artists won't say that <laughs> uh, because <laughs> even though they, they may that ha have that as an underlying goal, they're maybe not as committed to that as, as you are. And so, and in fact, on that note, I want to read, I'm going to read you a quote. This is a, uh, there was a review of, uh, I just killed my dad in the guardian, um, August 9th. It's written by Lucy Mangan. Um, I don't know if you've seen this, but this, this is a quote that Lucy has about your work. She says, she says, quote, the revelations in Borgman's films are enough to sweep away a substantial number of whatever struts you have underpinning your faith in humanity, unquote. <laughs> it's kind of depressing, isn't it? <laughs> well, but but I'd say no. I'd say it actually it actually speaks to what you just said, right? That I think good and great art challenges our assumptions, and it should make us feel that way. Good artists aren't doing this stuff so we we walk away feeling comfortable and you know, more secure in our worldview. And I, I, so I read that and I'm like, yeah, that, that's exactly, I, I'm going to have to, I read that. I still have to read that to Sky. Yeah, no, that's great. <laughs> see what she says. <laughs> Look, the other thing I really like is, is, is that at the end of any of my films, what I hope 
is that people leave and talk to somebody about whatever. They can hate it. I don't care if they hate it. But if those conversations can continue or if there's a dialogue or an argument that can continue, uh, I really think that that's an important aspect to, to kind of not tie everything up with a nice tidy bow because we all know that that nothing really can get tied up, that things are complicated and they're not easy yeah. to sort of bring to a full conclusion. So if people walk away or turn off the TV and turn to their partner or their whoever and just say, what did you think about that? Well, I think he's guilty. I think he's innocent. Why? Or I don't think, I think she could have said something. I think, you know, she could have worn something different, but what do you think that means? I mean, that's something, you know, if that can incite some sort of conversation, I think that's, that's what's really important to me as well. I think you're definitely doing that. I mean, you're 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 certainly doing that in our household. <laughs> yeah, and I want to thank you just for for understanding that you can attempt to make a difference through true crime too. Because of the surging popularity in true crime, I feel that people lose sight of the fact that those conversations can start and they're healthy and they're good. Whereas a lot of people talk about it being exploitation now, and uh, when you have true artists. Uh, with good intentions behind the scenes like you and my husband, John, I think that it can change the world for the better, you know? So I just want to thank you for that. Oh, thanks. And, and, and the, you know, the other thing I would point out about your documentary, Sky, is there, there's, there's all kinds of reflective moments in, in your, like, for example, one of the most powerful moments to me in, uh, I just called my dad, uh, no, I'm sorry. Well, in, in that and in girl, the girl in the picture, the girl in the picture was when you were talking to Cliff. Mm. And, right, it, it, like Cliff isn't a huge part of the documentary. He kind of comes in at the end. But um, And Cliff, by the way, for those who haven't seen it, uh, I don't want to spoil this, but Cliff is the father of the, per the girl in the picture. And, uh, you know, you, you, you bring in these little moments that are, are so profound because, you know, for example, that rate that to me, that moment with Cliff is a moment that everything could have changed, right? If Cliff at the age of 24 took in the girls, they would have a different future. And we don't know what happened, or at least I, I'm not clear about what happened to, uh, the other two, um, sisters or half sisters, but, um, but man, you you know you you don't have to say anything. You you just you you see this man that is so detached and so unemotional. And you know you, there's a huge moral dilemma there, right? In terms of is he capable of even could he raise three daughters in a, in a healthy way? If he does, he saves their lives. But on the other hand, you know he's a he's a combat veteran with trauma, like. Is, is he just going to make things work, right? It's And he doesn't know. And, and that's the thing. He doesn't know that he would have saved their lives had he taken them. You know, because if he knew what he knows now when, yeah. when he was just back from the war, right? I would like to think he would have said, yeah, if, if they're going to get murdered and all of these terrible things happen, I will take these girls and I will save them. But at the time, you know, it's just... He's dealing with a lot of PTSD. He's dealing with a lot of that. Feels like he's not going to be able to be a dad. It's just such a complicated thing. And you can see, you can see how tormented he is in the interview. I mean, so much it comes across with his with his inability to really to really be open and to really be vulnerable. So it's it was yeah, yeah it's heartbreaking. Right. And and you know, those types of moments I think are all over your work. And and I think that that's what makes it so powerful. You know, it that was a moment I didn't expect to see. I thought you were gonna start moving towards the denouement, right? And and wrap everything together. And here comes Cliff, right? And the the parents, the biological parents, and sort of their struggles with with what to do with their kids and you know, I don't know. So so I think you do a really great job of, of finding those moments that really kind of make us, you're putting the mirror up to the audience and saying, um, you know, what are you like as a parent? You know, are, are what responsibilities are you willing to bear as a, as a parent? You know, what, what risks are you going to take? What, you know, are you doing things for you? Or are you doing things for your kids? Right. What sacrifices are you going to make? You know, and it, I, I felt all of that, uh, you know, with Cliff and Cliff wasn't a big part of it, but I mean, 
you know, I Lauren and I talked a lot about that moment. So, um, and and it's not there's moments like that all over. There's moments like that with Teresa, who's mm. you know Anthony's mom, right? And she she fights for Anthony for a bit. She succumbs to whatever the process requires, right? And she gets beaten down. Yeah. That's really so much of it is like the system beats her down. Her, her financial situation yeah. beats her down. The search right. beats her down. And she just feels completely incapacitated to keep searching. And, and that's, that's a tragedy too, just how beaten down she felt. You know, Patricia, her mother, kind of tells us how and why that happens. You know, that, that there's generations of abuse and there's generations of trauma and like, you know, even if they have the resources to fight, you wonder if they have the emotional stamina to fight. Yeah, because it's, I mean, that's that's the big one is that emotional stamina. And and also just, you know, the simple fact that it's it's easier not to fight than it is to fight. And you hear this across the board from everybody. You hear it about women who go to rape trials and how beaten down they are. And it's that emotional stamina where like, that we really have to consider because when we've got to put ourselves out there, when these victims have to go out there and continue fighting for every woman out there, there's a huge amount of pressure there too that's put on them. Yeah. And, and some, look, I think some, some people have it in them to do that and others need to protect themselves by not fighting. And there are other ways to do it. And what does that fight mean? And it's just, you know, if, if we could provide space and support and not continue blaming and make it an easier path forward for people and women, especially, but, but men too, for victims to speak their truth and not be blamed for it. Look, it's a, it's a long road. It's a long road ahead of us, but that's that's the hope, I think. Yeah, that thank you. That's that's really well said. Um I think I would add to that that you know another element of your documentaries that stands out to me is that a lot of times we're you're kind of portraying very broken, damaged human beings. You know, the the questions are how can we help help them? How can we help them heal or how do we help human beings like this develop the stamina to get in the fight? I think it's strength in numbers. I really do. I mean, I think it's knowing that, that other people have fought. I think it's protecting some of the people who have fought and lost, um, helping them have continue to have a voice. Um, I just don't know exactly how to do that. I mean, it's like, it's also fine and dandy, you know, to say, yeah, let's provide support for them, but how do we actually do it? Yeah. And, and I don't know, look, I don't know that, that, that films do it. Um, I think, I think talking about it does it. I think films are a form of talking about it. Um, right. but, but the, the blame that's thrust on them and that's incessant, you know, to, to educate those that do it without knowing that they're doing it because I think that's the biggest problem is people have become so ingrained in sort of the way that they think that they just assume that it's the woman's fault or that she was asking for it, or it's the victim's fault or that he was asking for it because he misbehaved or because yeah. she wore a short skirt or because she went out and got drunk or, you know, but where I just wish that I think if people can, can do that sort of look into that mirror and go, Oh shit. I'm doing this without even really knowing that I'm doing this and I'm going to stop doing that. And if we can, if we can start doing that at a, at a, at, a, at home, then maybe that sort of grows into, into the jobs that we do and into the changes that we make. Um, yeah. Including Anthony's mother, including Anthony's mother who, you know, gave up because of the system. Well, she, she wouldn't have even had to deal with the system had she not been under coercive control and someone had kidnapped her son. Right, right, yeah. yeah. Well, and also, right, I mean, there were so many things. She didn't get any real help from the um, judicial system or from law enforcement. In fact, law enforcement sort of fit, you know, they were, they were on his side. Yeah. So in some ways, so, I mean, it, so yeah, I, I know those are, they're, they're really tough questions. I, I agree, important questions. Sins of Our Mother um, is going to be released next week, right? September 14th, Wednesday.
since we've talked about that case now for two years, we know a lot of the players and everyone is really excited to, to see this documentary. It's and one thing to know about the case. It's the other to see Sky Borgman's um, <laughs> perspective of the yeah. case. Well, it's really interesting. I have to, I, I actually have to throw a few sort of compliments back at you, John, because, uh, and Lauren both. I mean, we, your podcast was, we, I mean, we listened, I listened to it over and over again. I actually made transcripts of it so I could go back and read things. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it was so helpful in, you know, understanding the psychology of Chad and, and Lori and, and kind of, just really delving a little bit deeper and understanding the motivations behind them as much as we can. Look, yeah. I don't know if we're ever going to understand them completely, but it was right. super helpful in understanding that. So I do think, it, look, I what I feel this series has um, that I haven't seen before is the perspective from Colby um, and his perspective from the only living child of Lori Vallow, Lori Vallow Daybell, whatever we're calling her. Um, And what it feels, because I do think these are the people that get lost in these crimes, right? I mean, I've followed a couple chat rooms and whatever, you know, for the past couple of years. And when the film was announced, there were so many comments that came back saying, I didn't even know she had another child. And, (laughs) and, And I thought that was really interesting because it's like, so we we're looking at the two children who we know are deceased and they, they have names out there and, and, and we talk about Lori and we oftentimes don't remember the family members that are left behind and what they're going through and the trauma that they have to endure. Yeah. We see Lori Valla, we see Tylee, we see JJ and I, and I want to, you know, cherish Tylee and JJ and honor them as best as we can in this film, but to also, and this gets complicated, right? To honor Colby's journey and to honor Colby's struggles in dealing with this and his, his hope to sort of define himself away from his mother and how does he do that? And what are the pitfalls? And then, you know, to even go so far as to go, you know, we've, the trailer came out know, a couple weeks ago. And then last week, when we find out that Colby was arrested for domestic violence, and you yeah. just sort of go, I mean, it's the most, when I saw the news, I was, there was so many emotions. I mean, I was yeah. sad and angry and confused and shocked. And, and then you start I don't know, I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about this, John, because I just start thinking, <laughs> yeah. how how did this happen? And then you kind of start putting these pieces together. And clearly this young man has had a lot of abuse in his life yeah. that may not necessarily be called abuse or coercive control. And then you, you look at where this leads to and and it's just another element of this story that goes beyond Chad and Lori, way beyond Chad and Lori. Right, exactly. There, there, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you talked about that. Um, I know, I, you know, when, when I learned about it, my first response was just sadness. I know. You know, I just, I, I like Colby. You know, Colby, Col- the first time I, I filmed with you guys, Colby was there for most of the day. and. Um, you know, I had a chance to talk to him, obviously, on camera and off, and um, been through. He's been through so much. He's so young to go through all that, you know. And sort of like in in the girl in the picture, you know, with Patricia and Teresa, and like there's almost this fatalistic sense of intergenerational abuse and trauma. In fact, Patricia, I think, at one point says she's telling the story of the generations of abuse. And she says, I don't know how this is going to end. I don't know how I can end this, you know? And, and when she said that, um, I actually thought a lot about the Daybell case and the repercussions. And this is before Colby's arrest that, you know, I thought like it reminded me of Greek tragedy, you know, in the sense that like Greek tragedy is all about 
fatalism and you know there's sort of this and i don't want to concede that we don't have choices and because obviously we do but i think a lot of our choices are are you know determined by things we don't necessarily control unconscious forces for lack of a better term right and i think i think whether we like it or not like the greek tragedy model still is alive and well today and um i don't think people recognize that type of influence and so there's something tragic about it in the sense that, you know, it's it's almost an unstoppable force or it feels that way. It and, definitely it definitely feels that way, I think, with how events have transpired yeah. I mean, it's 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 like it absolutely feels like a Greek tragedy. So John and I did do a Patreon episode about our thoughts initially when the news came out. And John did bring up uh, in his meeting with Colby. Uh, religion and how he uses religion a lot to make himself comfortable with the tragedy that surrounds him. This is from John to me on our Patreon episode. Is there a cycle that could be stopped? And what is it that Colby might need to do in order to get there? And I, I just want to maybe ask that yeah. okay. and, and, and ask if that's what we have seen as far as Colby perhaps using religion as this defense mechanism, similarly to how his family and the Cox family has always used religion. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up because in my first interview with, with Sky and Netflix, uh, I sat down with Colby and I was asking him some really difficult questions and I was kind of trying to probe, uh, to, you know, move towards some difficult emotions and see if he could sort of process that. And I, you know, I think it was an interesting process because Colby kept pushing me back. You know, if every time I got close to something that was a little painful, um, he would throw me out with religion and he would say, you know, God is good. And he would kind of, I don't know if you remember that guy, but, but it was really, it, it was really kind of diagnostic, I think, of what's going on now in the sense that um, to heal, I think you have to find a way to dig a little bit. And I'm not denigrating religion. If people, you know, religion can be extremely helpful to people um, and it can be a valuable resource and it provides a real sense of comfort and meaning. But on the other hand, you know, when you've gone through a lot of trauma and that's your only language, that's your only narrative, I think it can really prevent the ability to dig deeper and to really process some really tough emotions. Um, and I think we kind of saw that with Colby. I don't know if you remember that, Sky, but I do. And it and I and I feel that look, I don't know, I personally don't know how you heal from the circumstances that Colby's under. The yeah. the murder of his, the alleged murder. It's murder. Come on. Of his entire family. Of his entire yeah. family. And the you know, incarceration of his mother. I mean, so how do you deal with that? I mean, is it, and and I think Colby really dealt with it through finding some faith in God, mm -hmm. Re redefining his faith. I think he, it's always been there, but it did, it certainly did at that point, I think when you met him and when we were all together and continued to grow. I think that that commitment to latching on to something greater something outside of him mm -hmm. to this god was became a little bit consuming and easier in a way to put that energy out mm -hmm. instead of pulling that energy in and going what does this mean to me what does this mean to my family and 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 i think that both can exist you know and when you yeah. when it gets too hard to look in go ahead and look out but then turn back into, and that's, that's, that's what I feel can be true healing. And if, if, if a spirituality is part of that amazing, but I think so much of it has to be within as well, whether, whether you feel God is inside you or not, but you do have to kind of look at, look at yourself and, and look at those that are, are around you. People probably don't know this about me as much as my work with offenders, but I've done a lot of work for, for, most of my early career, I was working mainly with victims of all kinds of abuse. I think it's just fundamental to be at some point to go through some grieving process and just to have the ability to say, this is so 
painful. And I'm going to deal with that pain, you know, however, you know, I'm going to deal with that pain in a healthy way. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually may think that, that this, that Colby's arrest may lead him to that. Now this may be, this may be his rock bottom and where he really has to start and kind of go, okay, now I have to, I have to start thinking about myself because I don't know that he's necessarily been doing that. Um, I don't know. Look, I don't know if that's true, but, uh, but I, I think I do. I think when we first talked and when, when you spoke with Colby and met him the first time, I think you did say that, that he hasn't really grieved. Yeah. Felt like he needed to. And that was a big concern to me, you know, and it's, don't get me wrong. I mean, it's real grieving is difficult. Yeah. In some ways, real grieving is a lifelong process. So when you open that gate, you know, you're, you're in some ways you're making a commitment to something that's going to be painful for the rest of your life. Yeah. And, and I don't know, you know, I don't think Colby was ready to go there at that time. And that would have been, I believe that was like November, 2020, um, give or take. And, you know, at that time, I just, he just wasn't there yet. Um, and I sort of knew, I sensed those limitations and, you know, I knew enough to kind of back off and, give him some space. And I mean, I kept trying to kind of go back to it, but it was pretty clear that he, he wasn't ready to do that. So, but, but even so, like even those few hours I spent with them, you know, that was, it was painful for me. You know, it's always hard for me to look at other people that struggle to grieve and, you know, they're the suffering they're experiencing because they can't get there, you know? And so I, I, I have a lot of empathy for Colby and, you know, I felt really uh, badly, not only for everything he's gone through, but just for his, his struggles to sort of make sense of the trauma emotionally. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, look, it's, it's complicated for me how to feel and, and yes. And it's hard. It's really, really hard. I think you just nailed why John's job, is in essence hard when people hear what he does, what he, you know, he works with victims of abuse and then he assesses the perpetrator for risk, often learning that they've been a victim in their past. And then throwing in that he does group sessions with those who have committed crimes in order to help, help them. And then to hear you Sky, say at the beginning of this interview, my goal is, you know, I want to focus on domestic violence and, and start this conversation and, you know, coercive control. And then the subject matter in your upcoming film has just been arrested for domestic violence. Someone I'm sure you learned to care deeply for this crime continues to reverberate throughout yeah. generations. And, and we're we'll not, continue. I also just want to say too, I, I know that one other thing, John, brought up and I'm curious what you think Sky 2 is, you know, the timing of it is. This is a film that I think would have really given Colby his moment or is going to, we've never heard from Colby. Uh, This is, I think, a moment where uh, people will recognize what he's been going through. I haven't seen the film. I'm just assuming, knowing how you followed his journey. And so I I also ask Dr. John, and I want to ask you, is there some self-sabotage involved in this i mean possibly john could probably speak to it more than i could in any kind of you know real educated way but um i think i know that attention and and press has been a little overwhelming for colby in dealing with you know people reaching out to him when when lori vallow became a household name right and Mm -hmm. And these headlines were blasted. And um, that was on a, a pretty big scale, you know, this whole Lori Vallow Daybell case in the United States, maybe in North America. What we're talking about now is that the, it's global. What will happen when this series goes out is the entire world will know the name Lori Vallow Daybell. And that's not that's not the case right now. It's 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 known in the western part of the United States, I think in a in a in a pretty big way, in the United States and possibly in Canada, in 
not quite as big, but this is going to be even bigger. And I think the realization of that is daunting, is very, very daunting. Whether or not it was self-sabotage, I don't know if I can speak to that. There may be elements of that, certainly. I, it, I could see, understand there being elements of that. John, I mean, do you think that, John? Yeah, I, I you know, it, again, it is, I think it's fairly complicated, but I, I think the biggest, probably the biggest element was, um, I didn't know he was separated from Kelsey, right? I think, I I think the separation was devastating to him. His wife was his world. He had no family, right? His family was annihilated. And so she meant everything to him. And um, I, I didn't know that that happened, but my guess is that was probably a really difficult moment and, and probably a bit of a slippery slope for Colby. So um, my guess is it starts there. Yeah, it's it's so interesting because it's, you know, my perspective to having finished the, the, the three episodes of Sins of Our Mother and then having the arrest and, and going back and looking at these scenes and it's, and you can, you can see in Colby's eyes with every single word that he says, how his wife is his rock. I mean, she is, she has gotten him through this. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and so I think that there's a big, and look, this is not easy. This, this tears families apart, especially because look, I mean, Kelsey and Colby got married before any of this happened. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I cannot imagine, like, I think about my husband and I'm like, would I stay with him if if this happened? Like, would I, would I, I mean, I, maybe I would, but I just don't even have any reference for what that, how that would be, how that would impact me and, and how that would how that would devastate my family. It's, it's such, such a big, big thing that she didn't sign up for, but then was sort of thrust in, thrust into. Yeah. You know, sort of like in, um, I just killed my dad when Anthony, you know, when, when Bert starts going through these series of losses, he loses his job, he's in debt, right? He starts like, there's these triggers. Bert's the father. Yeah. Bert's the father of Anthony, who's, Anthony's the person to go watch the documentary. <laughs> um, Anthony is the one who killed his father, who was Bert. And um, I think you have, you can see some similar triggers here that, you know, there's some stressors that his wife leaves him. He's separated from her. And he knows this documentary, by the way, is coming up. I think he's being thrust into the limelight that he doesn't necessarily like or he's sort of ambivalent about it. You know, there's there's a part of Colby, I think, that likes the attention, but then there's another part of him more recently that's been trying to kind of step away from that. So it has to be stressful to to think that you're going to be thrust into this, you know, the, like you said, this global drama um, from being featured in a documentary. And um, he doesn't have his wife with his, you know, by his side, there's probably some other stressors going on. I'm not sure about his employment situation, but my guess is there's some stressors there. I, I think it's it's it was probably very overwhelming. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's I think it's incredibly just the 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 specter of it is is incredibly overwhelming to him. Yeah, and and let's be honest. There's you know there's a lot of public opinion out there that's that's not favorable to Colby. Um, yeah. For whatever reasons, I think Colby is the brunt of a lot of people's projections. It, we we could probably talk for another hour about what you know why that's the case, but I think a lot of blame too before before yeah. all of this. You know, I think a lot of people blamed him. Yes. Right, and so I, you know, I, you know, I know from talking to Colby that he was trying to he tried to shrug that off, but it was difficult. You know, it's it's hard to have thousands of people blaming you and angry at you and sort of projecting whatever it is they're projecting that, you know, they're projecting their, their anger or their lack of control over the outcome of the case or that, you know, whatever it is, their feelings of, of, of grief towards the kids. 
and doing uh, it very publicly and very yeah. violently. I mean, that's, yeah. that's this, like this, what posting and social media and all of this world has created is this distance so that, so that there isn't, there's very little humanity a lot of times in, in these comments that are going out. They're very violent and they're very filled with blame and filled with hatred a lot of times where it wouldn't be that way if you were sort of human to human and could could look at all these different complexities. And and so this messaging that was getting to Colby from a lot of people, I think, was was very hurtful to him. And and yeah. I think just that, the idea that that could continue on. <sighs> I think it was I think it was present in his life that he was really thinking about that. Thank you for bringing that up because that was actually going to be a question I asked you is again before his arrest he was already um I think yeah there was a lot of blame on social media towards him and anger hurled at him and I think sometimes people think that these victims are never aware of these conversations thousands of people that don't know him are having you know, videos being made. And so I wanted to ask you that, like, was this discussed uh, between you two? I don't know what's going to be in the documentary, but was this something he talked about that was difficult? He, yeah, I mean, it was very difficult to him. And I think, you know, he, he wanted, he wanted the opportunity to tell his story and it's hard for him. It's really hard for him to tell his story. But I think that 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 was a big part of it, that he felt like nothing was in his control. Like there were all these these voices out there. And and almost with everything that he did that he thought was a good thing, came back and he got sort of slapped down for it. And so I think that the that doing the series was very much about him sort of taking taking control of his life back a little bit and having having the ability to kind of tell his side of the story. But it's I mean he was it was it was pretty it was it was pretty hard for him to deal with a lot of it. And so it's it's not hard to imagine that when his life, wife leaves him he's he's lost a lot of control again. Uh, and certainly has no control over how how a global audience will react to a documentary about him, or or at least about his family. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I think those are some pretty enormous stressors. Um, I, and again, yeah, I'm not I'm not justifying what he did or excusing it. What he did was horrible. And and I think it, this kind of takes me back to to talking about you know Sky's documentaries that there there's one thing I appreciate Sky is that you know there's always and it's something I struggle with in my work it, which is sort of um, giving the offender or a murderer or a sex offender a voice versus giving the victim a voice right there's there's kind of this balancing act between finding the right you know, the right way to be fair to the offender and to still acknowledge the importance of what the victim has suffered. Um, yeah, it's really, it's really complicated. Um, I think because there's, there's, an, it's necessary to understand, I think, especially for you to understand the, the mind and the workings of a perpetrator and how, how it gets to this point, because there's, have to understand it in order to be able to sort of talk to somebody or steer something or understand the world in a greater capacity. And you have to understand how a victim goes. And so this, but you can't, look, you can't always say, well, you got to forgive him because he had all this abuse in his past. Yeah. You can't do that. You can't do that. But again, that takes us back to, I just killed my dad. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Like complicated because because I do think that 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 Anthony's lifetime of imprisonment and and this separation from anybody really outside of his family and this coercive control that Bert, his father, absolutely put onto him ended up with him shooting his father and, and his eventual death. Yeah. Should he be sure. convicted of murder? The ultimate question you pose. The question, yeah. And you said you said at the beginning of this interview, if your documentaries can spark a conversation, whatever that conversation is, 
then you are grateful for that, which is what this has been so far. And, and so thank you for you know, it, it, a difficult conversation with us. Right yeah, yeah. <laughs> one, one, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, one interesting element of working with offenders that I found to be true, whether it was sex offenders or murderers, is that many of them wanted to be forgiven. Many of them wanted their victims to forgive them. They wanted to hear that. In fact, in so, to some degree, they needed that to feel like they could heal. Um, and so, you know, one of the, and so that that's what makes murder, I think, so difficult is when you murder someone, you're never going to get forgiveness from your victim because there is no victim to forgive you. So you have to find another way to do it, right? You have to find another way to find that peace within yourself that's not coming from that victim. Um, and I think that makes things really complicated in a way. And, and, and I'm talking about probably the healthier offenders, Right. The, are, healthier murderers. Yeah. Yeah, the healthier murderers <laughs> that, that get the importance of forgiveness or some type of um, redemption or some, some, some way to find peace that's, that's always eluded them for most of their lives. Um, I mean, you hear about that too. I would imagine a lot with, with victims' families and their, their need a lot of times to forgive the perpetrator so that yeah. they can move on. I mean, to carry that hatred around and that, right. you know, that must be incredibly challenging to do. So this, but it, it's also really interesting because this idea of forgiveness is a very personal one as well. And, and I, and I think it has to be a personal decision because like, do, does any individual need to forgive in order to feel better or, does it make them feel better to not forgive and, and right. continue on? And I think it's a very personal choice. I agree. Yeah, it's right. It's a very individualized choice. And um, it probably depends on the person's ability to grieve and their mental health and a lot of different factors. But I, I agree. I think in some cases it's healthier if they hang on to some sort of anger. Maybe. Yeah, I, I, I think so too. Um, because in in some ways that keeps them from falling off the edge, you know. Mm -hmm. that, that if 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 depression or suicide are lurking on the edge edge of the other side of the cliff, then I'd rather see them be angry, you know. So I know that I know that Colby has attempted to forgive his mother publicly, but do you think Colby needs Lori to almost say? I'm sorry because we hear in the trailer and these jailhouse calls the opposite that she's still excusing her behavior. Do you think one part of Colby's healing is a deep need for his mother to say, I'm sorry to him? Probably. Or, or to take some ownership of what happened. I think, I think it may not even be forgiveness, but to take, to, to not deny it completely and to take some ownership. To acknowledge it. Yeah. That's what I that's what I thought of when John was talking about forgiveness and apologies needed is how does that affect him too that she m might not be taking any yeah. ownership for completely for murdering his entire family. Yeah. Yeah, when I you know when I talked to Colby it seemed like um he felt like he was going to get some closure or at least a little bit of closure if his mother could could at least tell the truth. Yeah. And look, that's also another, it's also something else that's coming up in the future, right? I mean, we're in September right now. The trial is supposed to happen in January. I kind of don't think it will. Um, I think it's going to continue to get pushed. But also, I mean, this trial has been pushed many, many times. And so mm -hmm. it's just like, it's like this moving target and you think that something's going to happen and you might be able to get some closure. Yeah. And it gets pushed and then pushed again and then all of this stuff happens and all of this legal schmiegly, you know, all of this stuff. And, and it's gotta be incredibly difficult to deal with that when you think you're going to get something and it just keeps getting further and further away. Yeah. And I'm sure that's a part of, of that's contributing to his stress. Yeah. You know, that there's no resolution. And like you said, every time there's appears to be a glimmer of hope, it keeps getting pushed back into the future. Yeah. Sky, we've taken an hour of your time, generous time. Thank you. Is there anything you want to talk about before we 
conclude? I mean, I don't think so. I, I really, I mean, I really appreciate you having this difficult conversation with me because I think the more, the more we can do things like this um, in a, in a public way and, and talk about these hard things, I think it's, I think these conversations are important to have. Um, and so I appreciate, I appreciate you having it with me. I really do. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, we we appreciate you taking the time on such short notice to, to be with us. So thank you very much. Um, I do want to ask you, um, you know, the, it seems like uh, when people ask me about the work I do, the most common question I get all the time is, how can you stomach being in front of these murderers or sex offenders or pedophiles? Or how can you, how can you deal with that? How do you you know, how do you have a normal life when you, you know, when you're spending day in and day out with some of the most heinous people on the planet? Um, and and I and I want to translate that question a little bit for you, Sky, since you've been, you know, involved in in true crime now for a while. Um, does it have an impact on you personally? Does it has has working in this this area, you know, this area, sort of influenced how you see the world? Definitely. I mean, I don't know how it cannot have an impact on how I see the world. Um, but I don't, I don't think it's necessarily a negative impact. Um, I, with every one of these projects, I, I go through different emotional stages, right? I mean, I, when I'm with people, when I'm sitting down to interview people, I'm, I'm very much present with them. I'm listening to them and I'm incredibly emotionally attached to what's going on. Mm -hmm. And then we get into the post process of it and it, and I'm able to sort of distance myself a little bit more and think about the practicalities of how do I put the story together and what are the issues? But I think what, with everything, you know, I walk away with something going, Oh, this is an issue that I need to be thinking more about. And this is something, you know, that I need to dive a little deeper into and really figure out what it is that I want to be saying and the message that I want to be putting out there. And with everything I'm always learning, I don't know enough about something. So I need to, I need to learn more about it. I need to talk more about it. I need to, to, to revisit what this means on, you know, uh, I, the films I do, a lot of people watch them and, yeah. and there's a lot of, a lot of responsibility there to be putting messages out there that are well-informed. And so with all of them, I'm always learning how I can be more well-informed. And so I really appreciate the opportunity to kind of, to better myself too, with the films that I do. Awesome. Thank you. I, I like to ask this question to everyone I talk to. <laughs> Uh, maybe this isn't the best question to ask in the current environment, but um, what is it that keeps you up at night? My dog keeps me up at night because he barks at coyotes all night long. <laughs> that's a good now answer. Now asking me a serious um, question, I came back with that. Yeah, that's that's good. I, uh, um, a bad answer. Well, I'm okay. glad you're. I'm glad you're feeling safe, though. That's... I am feeling very safe, yeah. But yeah. I think what keeps me up at night is just is 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 being responsible, you know. And how can I be as responsible as I can with these stories I tell? That's awesome. That that's how I feel about my job, by the way. Like I, you know, Lauren would tell you. I think that one of the things that keeps me up at night is making life and death decisions about people that most people don't like, you know, and. Um, but being fair to them and, you know, asking the question, should these people ever be in the community again? And so I think I, I totally relate to that, that, you know, I see my job as being as responsible as I can be as a empathic human being and someone who's trying to protect the community too. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you. We, we, I appreciate your, your work and your films. And I was, very honored and humbled to be a part of your documentary, um, even though I know it's changed a lot. Um, we hear he was cut a lot. <laughs> <laughs> You're still don't, a big part of it. You're still okay. Of it. <laughs> don't, don't worry, I forgive you. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Just, just making it into a, a Sky Bergman documentary for a few minutes is, is a great honor. So 
Um, You're a big thank- part of it and a big part of understanding the psychology behind this. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. And yeah, hopefully we can we can get other people um, to watch this and to participate in this dialogue and we can, you know, pay it forward a little bit. So thank you. Thank you. It was it was such a great pleasure to, to sit here and talk through things.